Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. And um, before I uh, before I get started, I want to mention a few different things. Um, number one, um, most of y'all know Ben and Cindy, but they got married yesterday, uh, so that's exciting. And uh, so if you are uh, if you want to text them today, uh, maybe you didn't know that. Um, text them today. They had to have a really uh, sh- uh, kind of. Uh, very few people were there because of the COVID-19, um, and uh, so they just had close, close family and just a few, few friends, like very few friends, uh, that were able to be there. And I was able to do their wedding, officiate their wedding, and so, um, so, so encouraged and and so uh, uh, happy about what God is doing, and um, just encourage them this this week if you think about them. And I wanted to make that that known. Um, the other thing is is that um, maybe you didn't know this, um, uh, but we started our summer growth group last Thursday. Uh, it's only gonna it's going to kind of be uh, every other week, uh, kind of have a summer goes. Um, so we won't be meeting this Thursday, but the next Thursday, please put that on your schedule. We'd love for you to be a part of part of that. We are going through the book Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life by Donald Whitney, and so we'll be talking about biblical intake. We'll be talking about uh, reading the Bible, hearing the Bible, memorizing the Bible, and meditating on God's Word uh, in two weeks. So make sure you're a part of that. Um, and if you're unable to be here, um, we're, we'll have it on Zoom, and so you can watch it on Zoom. So be encouraged by that. And if you want a reminder, if you have a hard time remembering, there is a piece of paper right there next to those Bibles as you exit the door. It has the big uh, Redeemer logo on the big circle one. Grab one of those pieces of paper, right? It's not going to eat you if you take one. Just grab one and uh, just kind of remember that information on there and so that you can be involved in some ministry stuff going on this summer. So we are in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to read these two chapters, maybe 4 and 5, and then I'm going to pray for us. I've heard from many people that you've been encouraged by this book so far. Um, that that makes me happy. I'm glad that you're encouraged by this book. It's about to get more difficult this week and into the next. So just kind of put on your seatbelt and get ready. Um, so here we go. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Revelation. And this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne with a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne was burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, at, there was as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The, living, the first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crown before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. And so it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you were ransomed, you were ransomed people for God and every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to, the, to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard, behold, around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, there were myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and all honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you so much for your church. We thank you so much for everyone that is gathered together, Lord. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness. We praise you, Lord, for your love and your compassion on us and your grace that you reign upon us. Lord, we thank you for friends, Lord, that, uh, that are, encourage us, Lord, who challenge us, who correct us when we are wrong, who will sit with us and comfort us and listen to us, listen to our frustration. We thank you so much for the gathered church of believers who come together to worship you and to do life together. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be unified. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be one in Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are still not with us, Lord. We pray for them as you continue to watch over them and, and keep, keep them safe. Keep us all safe, Lord. Lord, we pray for our country. We pray for our nation. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would help us as the church proclaim the gospel to those in the world that are looking for the things of this world to bring them hope when the things of this world will not bring them hope. Only Christ will bring hope to the world. Help us, Lord, to be focused on that through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So the sermon title is Who Can Bring Justice in a World of Injustice? Who Can Bring Justice 
in a world of injustice. Kind of the, the big idea is there is no justice, there is no peace outside the kingdom of Christ. There is no hope, there is no, there is no justice, and there is no peace outside the kingdom of Christ. As a way of introduction, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, last Saturday called Violent Protests in the Intelligentsia. It's kind of a big word for you, intelligentsia, which is a word I didn't know this. It's a word that comes from Russia. It's a word that became popular in Russia during their different revolutions in the 19th century and the early 20th century. Intelligentsia are people that kind of define the intellectual culture or the intellectual class of a society and they're not just simply teachers in a classroom. These are intellectuals that are teaching uh, students, but also uh, being are leaders of movements and political movements. And these are titled as the intelligentsia. And the, the author of this article, uh, Burton Swam, Violent Protests in the Intelligentsia, presents the question of who are, what, does history have a direction? Is history actually going anywhere, right? Um, are there agents of history? And throughout history, throughout the past, there's always been these figures, either they're politicians, uh, either they're uh, professors and thinkers, those who kind of, uh, kind of are in the academic world, artists, uh, movement leaders, who kind of claim themselves as agents of history. Either they're trying to, to kind of keep history or keep their society or culture the way that it is, or they're wanting to change it and move it in a different direction. So these intelligentsia, like I said, comes from Russia. It's the educated people who identify with one or another of the radical movements. These intelligents believe in typically atheism. This is in Russia. They typically believe in atheism, revolutions, and either socialism or anarchy. And they were trying to move the culture, move the society in a particular direction. And in the Soviet Union, this happened, right? In the early 20th century, uh, Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks caused a revolution, and they kicked out the power structure of the czars and instituted a new power structure. And you, you was, it was claimed to be a workers' class revolution, but really what it was was an intelligentsia revolution. The intellectuals kicked out all the aristocrats. It's pretty much what happened in the Russian Revolution. There's a quote from the article, uh, Barton Swamp says, The idea was that since they knew the theories, they were morally superior and they should be in charge, and that there was something fundamentally wrong with the world when practical people were. So what you take from your education would be the idolatry, I mean, ideology that would justify this kind of activity. Justify it because the wrong people have the power and you should have it. You don't feel like you're the establishment. So they tell that the goal of the thinking here. The goal of the thinking here, that history has a direction, and that direction is identical with your own political view. So if you believed in A, and this is your political view, you believe history should go this direction. If you're an agent of history, if you're an agent of change, you're trying to direct history this direction. But if you're someone else, you're from this political view or ideology, you're trying to push history this way. All these agents of history believe their goal is to push society into their ideal future. What does that have to do with what we're talking about in Revelation, Revelation 4 and 5? Because what Revelation 4 and 5 tells us is that history does have a direction, but it has one agent of that history. Not multiple agents of history. Just one. 
and it's pretty centrally located. There's a particular place by which it comes from. There's a particular person by which it is accomplished. It's pretty clear in these two chapters of Revelation. Let me present some of the context of these two chapters, okay? I'm going to take us a little bit into the Old Testament here because really Revelation 4 or 5 is littered with Old Testament uh, uh, imagery and almost direct quotes from particular visions of the Old Testament. One of these, one of these Old Testament uh, uh, passages that is mentioned quite a few times here in Revelation 4 and 5 is Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Uh, this is a vision uh, of Daniel. Daniel chapter... Seven. Every time you're going to use a cross-reference in one of the minor prophets, it's always going to be hard to find. Uh, Daniel chapter, chapter 7, starting in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing were white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool, the throne with fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. Very similar to what we already read. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand a thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And this court sat in judgment, and the door were opened. The doors were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as they looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to the burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, And I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Very similar language that we see in Revelation 4 and 5. John is having a similar vision that Daniel has. I'm not going to read Ezekiel chapter 1, but it's almost very similar to what we read in Revelation 4 and 5, what the prophet Ezekiel sees. What's so interesting about these two passages in Daniel chapter 7, Ezekiel chapter 1, and Revelation 4 and 5 is the similar context by which these passages, these passages sit in. What's happening during the time of Daniel and Ezekiel? It's the time of the exile. Israel has been oppressed. They've been kicked out of the land. They're under persecution. They're under tribulation. Time of distress for Israel. Exiled from the land, under oppression. What happens in Revelation 4 and 5? Seven letters to the churches, right? What are they going through? Oppression. They're going through the tribulation. What are both groups needing? They're needing encouragement. By whom? By God. And how does God encourage them? He encourages them through this vision. A vision of his throne. A vision of his power. This chapter, chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, is interlocking with, um, it, it really connects well with the two chapters we've already talked about, the seven letters to the churches in Asia. But really, 4 and 5 are introduction, it's a prologue to the rest of the letter of Revelation. This kind of helps us see where all of the things that are about to come in, in chapter 6, through chapter 16, where all the judgments of God are about to come out, they're all coming from the throne of God. They're all coming from the throne of God. So what do we know is that Jesus has returned to heaven. He has overcome the world. He has now received power in a name above all names through his suffering. 
And then what, is, what does Jesus say to the seven churches? Every one of those churches, he says, to the one who overcomes. He says this to every one of those churches. To the one who overcomes. The one who overcomes are those who have trusted in Christ, the risen Christ, and are participants in his kingdom. What are they receiving? They're receiving white clothes. They're receiving a seat on a throne. They're receiving crowns. There's this idea of this imagery of open doors into heaven, the presence of God with his churches. This language of overcome, that because Christ has overcome sin and death, the church shall overcome the oppression and persecution that happens in the world. The promise of victory and vindication by the one who sits on the throne to those who have trusted in him. The promise of justice and peace to God's people by the one who sits on the throne to those who believe in his name. Those are the ones who will receive justice. Those are the ones who will receive vindication. Those are the ones who will overcome the world as those who are in Christ. There's no justice. There's no peace outside of the kingdom of Christ. So point number one is worthy is the holy God and the slain lamb to establish justice and peace for his ransom people. <clears throat> Worthy is the holy God and the slain lamb to establish justice and peace for his ransomed people. So the first kind of sub-point under that, if you're, if you're in the Harvard outline list, you have point numeral one and then you have point A. Okay. Point A is, I will show you what must happen. I will show you what must happen. This is in verse 1 of Revelation 1. We what really what we get here is kind of how this letter, how this book is organized. You get these key words, these key phrases that tell you a new section is about to begin. This is a new section. I will show you what must happen. All after these things, after these things, after these seven letters have been presented to John, after these things, he saw a new vision. A new section has started, and he sees a door. He says, behold, a door. Door is a very interesting imagery. We've gotten a lot of these images of door. This is not the first time we've seen this image of a door, right? Revelation 3, verse 7 and 8, a door opened to the church in Philadelphia, a door that will, shall not be shut, a door that's always open to those who are in Christ, that Jesus has the keys of David, that the keys of the kingdom of God are in Christ, and that door is always open. It will never be shut to those who are in Christ. Revelation 3.20, Christ stands at the door and knocks, right? There's a door. There's a renewed fellowship. Christ wants to fellowship with his people. He wants to lead. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to, to follow him in discipleship. It's a renewed fellowship. We get this idea of a door, the presence of God with his people. It made me think, and I don't know if it's proper, but I think it's helpful for me. When I think of door, my mind always goes to the Chronicles of Narnia. It always goes to the wardrobe, right? They walked through the wardrobe. When they walked through the door, they entered into a new world, right? This door represents a new world. It represents the, the heaven of God. It re represents the presence of God. Christ has the keys to the door opened in heaven. Access to the presence of God is opened to you. We like to use this language in our society of open and closed, right? Some of us had opportunities open. Some of us have opportunities closed, right? I had opportunities closed because I don't have certain abilities or certain uh, skills or I don't have the right parents, or the right networks of people. We use that language in a positive and negative way. I just, if doors would open for me. What's so fascinating about the Bible is the door is always open to those who are in Christ. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, right? 
Christ is our great high priest. We should draw near through Christ with confidence to the throne of God so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That in Christ, that door, that access to God is always open. John hears this first voice and we have the same idea. It's a sound of trumpet that maybe this is the voice of the Lord. Uh, in some of your Bibles, it's not in red, so maybe it's not. But we see this idea that the first voice uh, that sounded like a trumpet, this happened in Revelation 1.10, that maybe this is Jesus who is speaking to John again to come here and I will show you what must happen after this. This is a very key phrase in Revelation. This starts a new section that leads all the way to the end of 16. When you get to chapter 17 of Revelation, you get the same phrase in chapter 17 verse 1. Come here and I will show you what must happen after this. Everything that flows in this book flows out of the vision in chapter 4 and 5. This is probably one of the most important sections of this entire book is 4 and 5. Because it really is, everything flows out of these to this vision here in 4 and 5. The one who sits on the throne. We don't, they don't tell you it's God. It's, John goes into, he's in heaven, the door is open, right? He's in the spirit, it says. He's in the spirit. He's basically taking on this, this role of a prophet, right? He's in the throne of God. He sees the heavenly counsel of the Lord. And he is told to speak the word in the will of God, to, that people would trust and obey God. Right? As John is taking on this role as a prophet, a prophet speaks the word of God, he speaks the will of God, and people who read this are to trust and obey it and make his will known. We talked about that in the first chapter, right? That those are blessed who hear this, who, who, who keep this word. And so John sees this this throne. And so the second point, point number B, is the one who sits on the throne in heaven is full of glory, mercy, justice, and holiness. The one who sits on the throne in heaven is full of glory, mercy, justice, and holiness. There's a throne that's established in heaven. Behold, a throne is established in heaven. John sees this. He sees this throne. He sees one who's sitting on the throne. The throne here is the key image. Don't get distracted by all these other images, right? Don't get distracted by the creatures. Don't get distracted by the elders. Don't get distracted by all this other imagery. Focus your heart, focus your mind on the throne because that is the key image in these two in this in this chapter, the throne. Everything flows out of the throne. The throne is the center of the universe. Not Washington, D.C., not New York, not London. They're not the centers of the universe. The White House is not the center of the universe. The throne of God is the center of the universe. And we're gonna, it's, it's going to be quite apparent that it's the center of the universe as John describes what he sees. This is really speaking of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is the key thing you have to remember as we go through this book. Don't get so distracted by the imagery. Don't get so distracted by the weirdness. Focus your heart and mind on the throne and focus your heart and mind on the sovereignty of God. Because all of what, as the readers, as the early church read this, and we as, as well, are called to endure as God's people, right? To endure as God's people in the time of oppression, in the time of suffering, to remind ourselves that God is on the throne, that he is sovereign, he is Lord, he is in control of history. Remind us of that fact. 
but also for those, it's a warning to those who are unrepentant to repent and believe in God, right? When you see the judgments that flow out of this throne, we are comforted as God's people that God is in control and that he will bring justice into the world. But if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're not then saved by Christ, it should lead you to repentance and faith. And so John sees this, right? He's, he sees this throne and he sees the appearance of jasper. He sees these precious stones and he, it says it looks like jasper, right? It looks like these stones, but you see these, these colors and this bright light. These stones intensify the light around the throne. These same, throne, these same uh, stones are mentioned in Revelation 21 as a part of the foundation of the new Jerusalem. And these stones are supposed to speak to the glory of God, that he is glorified, that he is, that he is beautiful, and that he is majestic. There's a rainbow around the throne, it says. There's a rainbow. What does that remind us of when we think of rainbow? It reminds us of Noah and how God showed the rainbow as what? A mark of his, or a sign of his mercy. So not only does the throne of God describe his glory and majesty, it also describes his mercy. In the midst of God's judgment, God is still full of mercy, right? Even when these judgments start flowing out in the next several chapters, we have to remind ourselves that God is also full of mercy. When we think about Noah's in the ark, right? We think the great flood that destroyed the world, but what else do we see? His mercy. Mercy on Noah and his family, but also the sign of mercy in the sky. God's beauty and glory is overwhelming. So the worship that follows makes sense. God is not some old dude who fell asleep in his chair. He's not some old wise king who's, who's so old he can't pick up his sword anymore. God is still very active. God is full of glory. He's sitting on a throne that's in all power and glory. And lightning and sounds and thunder are coming from his throne. God is full of justice as well. When we think of thunder, when we think of lightning, when we think of the, the power and the thunder of his, of his voice, we think of Exodus chapter 19, we think of God who gave the law to his people, we think of his judgment, we think of his justice. We are living in a world, we're going to talk a lot about this today, we're living in a world who are crying out for justice, right? We want justice. But justice comes from God. I mean, we see it here, right? We see the thunder, we see Exodus 19 and the law coming from God, God giving his law, God showing his character. We're going to talk about, like, justice does not come from, hand, from institutions made by human hands. Justice comes from Christ, who's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I think the reason why we struggle with this idea is because we struggle with the sovereignty of God. Most of the Christians of this world struggle with the sovereignty of God. We think that we're basically in this survivalism, that we have to take care of ourselves, we have to figure out our own issues, we've got to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and that is how we live. And that is just not the truth. God is in control. He is sovereign. He will always be sovereign. And he will bring comfort to those enduring oppression if you believe in his sovereignty. If you don't believe in his sovereignty, then you're relying on human institutions, you're relying on wealth, and you're relying on power. You're not relying on God. 
But God is the one that has all those things. He has power. He has the wealth. So we see God's justice here. We also see the sea of glass like crystal, the sign of his purity and holiness of God. The one who sits on the throne and judges the world is holy in his judgment. His judgment is good. See, if you don't catch that, you'll read the rest of this book and go, God is mean. He's a mean God. But if you recognize his purity and his holiness and his majesty and his glory and his mercy and his perfect justice, you see these judgments as good and righteous. The third thing here, the third point here is he's worthy of constant praise. Constant praise. Verses 7 through 11. So we see these weird, you see these weird creatures, right? We're not going to focus on a lot of them. I'm not going to go through all these four different creatures and tell you exactly what they mean. We don't have time. But one of the things we know about these creatures stood around the throne, right? The four living creatures stood close and around the throne. These 24 elders in the thrones were outside of that other group, but they're in the presence of God. And these creatures are heavenly creatures. They're full of eyes. They're constantly, so they're full of eyes, right? And what are, they, what are they doing? They're worshiping God. They said, holy, 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 right? It's almost as if they see God in all these different eyes on the front and the back, and they see fresh reasons why God needs to be glorified, right? You would think that if you're in the presence of God always, you pretty much understood that, okay, God has these things going for him. He has these, these things, reason why he should be praised. But he's constantly providing new evidence and new fresh reasons why he should be worshiped. Full of eyes are constantly identifying new and fresh evidence to his worthiness, his sovereignty, his glory, and his holiness. And I love this idea they never, they never cease or rest from worshiping. Did you catch that in that? They never cease. They never rest. We think of never resting as bad. They never rest as a positive thing that they saw always worthiness of, of God and worthiness of praise always. Always, he deserved praise. Never bored in their worship. Which is so crazy because, let's just be honest, most of us when we come to worship are somewhat bored, right? We do this every Sunday, 52 Sundays a year. You live a life, if you're a Christian, most of your life. That's a lot of worship experiences, right? You're like, sometimes we're just bored by it, right? These creatures never was tired of worshiping God. You know, one of the things that uh, yesterday, I was driving back from the wedding, it was pretty late, and uh, I uh, don't listen to the radio very often, like music radio, and so I was looking for a radio station, and I fell on like 92 point something in Bloomington, and they were playing, I thought it was awesome, I, I don't know if other radio stations do this, but I thought it was great, they played live con concerts on the radio, and they were playing a 2010 concert of Mumford & Son, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome, and so I'm a bit, I was a... I'm, Somewhat of a fan. The, the newest stuff's not very good. But anyways, uh, let's not get into that. But uh, and I was listening to this live con uh, concert, and I was like singing, man. And, like, and you can hear the people at the concert, right, in 2010. They're like screaming, right, a new song. Oh, that's my favorite song. If you've been to a concert, especially if a band you like, you're always waiting for those few songs that are your favorite, right? And when you hear it, you kind of like, woohoo, yell a little bit. Uh, and you're like, oh, so, and if they don't play that song, like you leave kind of disappointed because they didn't play your song or your few songs. 
Um, but, you know, I've been to several concert, concerts, and I go with these people back in the day in high school and college, and they always wanted to go, and they wanted to hear their special songs. So they're always screaming when they hear their, their favorite songs. They just shout, and they start singing and praising. And you, when you go to these concerts with people who really like their band, they never want the music to stop, right? More encores, right? Encore, encore, encore. These creatures were singing encore, encore all the time. Praise, 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 praise. Never ceasing. Holy, holy, holy. This is reminding us of Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah saw the seraphims and they were crying, holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew language, they don't have best. They don't, they don't have these, these words that we use in English to describe the best of. They would mention something three times to emphasize that this is the greatest. He's the holiest of all. He is the holy God. Who was and is to come. God has control over history. He's, he brings us courage as his church to trust him. These, at the end of this chapter, we see that these 24 elders, they fall down. They worshiped and cast their crowns before God, before his throne. Which really kind of shows us how we should worship, right? It's, worship is not just something we do with our mouths. It's a physical thing as well. They physically fell down on their knees to worship. They praised his name with their emotions and then with their words, with their intellect. That's why we think about God. We need, it's important to think about God well, to read his word and to think about him well, to do it intellectually, to do it with your mind, not just with your emotions. And they present the crowns to him physically, right? They present these crowns to him, which help us to understand what worship is. Worship isn't just coming to church and singing. Worship is about learning about God. It's about giving. This is a physical thing. It's about, it's about either getting on our knees or raising our hands or closing our eyes or doing something to identify the humility that we are in the presence of God and we're worshiping God and holy, holy, holy is the God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. He is worthy of your worship. Not kings, not rulers, not presidents, not leaders of movements, not celebrities are worthy of your worship. But guess what? We're Americans and we worship all those things. He is the only one that can establish justice and peace. He has already established justice and righteousness through his son, and which we're about to talk about next in chapter 5. So in chapter 5, 1 through 4, we see that John now sees on the throne, the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, a scroll, a book. It was seven seals on the book. And the strong angel, an angel says, who is worthy to bring justice to the world? Who's worthy to open the scroll? And Basically, he's saying who is worthy to bring justice to the world. Who is worthy to accomplish God's glorious plan. This is point number D or 4. Who is worthy to bring justice to the world. There's a book written inside and on the back. It was on the right hand who sits on the throne. And it's, this book represents the judgment of God. We even see, when I read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, you see the book, right? There's books were opened. 
And these books lead to the judgment and the establishment of the Son of Man's kingdom. We see this in Daniel chapter 7. We see that the Son of Man will come and he will establish dominion over the world. He will establish his kingdom and he will reign. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seal? The book, again, represents God's plan of judgment and his redemption. Christ's death and resurrection started the end of the world. It started the last days, but yet they're not yet completed. But we're in the last days. If you want to know when the end of the days starts, it's already started. It started in the first century when Jesus rose from the dead. What, what, what do we find out, though, at the end of this question? No one is worthy. No one is worthy in heaven or in earth. Nowhere on the earth, nowhere anywhere is there anyone worthy to open the book. And what does John do? He weeps. It says he weeps greatly to this fact, to this reality, that no one is worthy. That means God's glorious plan will not be accomplished if it's not opened. Judgment will not come. Hope is lost without someone worthy to open the, the book, to break the seals. What hope does the world have without Christ and his kingdom? Nothing else in this world will satisfy. We already established that last summer. We went through Ecclesiastes. Nothing will satisfy you. Wealth and power will not satisfy you. Even if people who are oppressed in the world get everything that they want, but they don't have Christ, and Christ doesn't have his kingdom, then it's for naught. It really is. That's just the truth of the matter. If Christ's kingdom isn't established, then we have no hope. I don't care how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter. There is no hope. So school represent, the scroll represents the plan for the end of the history. Justice, vindication, peace. It's all dependent on someone being worthy to open the scroll. And to, honestly, that we should be in the same, react similarly that, that John does here if there is no one worthy to open the book. Point number five, the lamb who had been slain is worthy to bring justice. The lamb who had, who had been slain is worthy to be, bring justice. So John is told to stop weeping. He says that The angel says, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has come to overcome. He has overcome. He has conquered sin and death and Satan. He has been given a name above all names. Who is this? Lion of Judah, who is this um, root of David? It was talking about Jesus Christ. And he's represented here in very interesting language. It doesn't mention his name. It doesn't mention the way that he looks. It mentions the lamb who had been slain. A lamb in the midst of the throne standing who had been slain. The Passover lamb, the suffering servant, through death. This is how Christ rose to power. Even mentions that this lamb had seven horns, talking about his power. He stands in power as the one who had been slain. The eternal evidence of his rise to power through his death. When you see Jesus in the eternal kingdom, you will see Jesus in the marks of his death. The eternal evidence of how he rose to power was not through military conquest. It was through his blood. It was through the cross. The cross is, his, is, is an imagery that shows that 
This is where his power comes. The monument of his victory is his scars. He came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. He took the book out of the hands of God. Because he's worthy to open it up. He's worthy to take it from God. He is worthy to accomplish God's glorious plan for history. We have confidence in the future because Christ will bring God's plan to completion. Justice will reign. Peace will reign because Christ is worthy to open the book and establish the kingdom of Christ. It's a vision for a better world is in Christ. It doesn't it's not in white supremacy, okay? A world full of white people getting all the power is not a vision for a better world. Also, not Black Lives Matter, this idea of, 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 of complete harmony and, 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 and peace given by human institutions. That also is not a better world. I know that's hard to believe that right now in the way that the, the political language is going on, but you have to think as Christians and not as secularists. When you're, a, when you're a believer in the Bible, you recognize that money and power will not bring you completion and satisfaction. Only Christ. Only Christ. So when you know people, when you talk to people, identify them as an image bearer of God, but recognize their true need is the gospel. It's always the gospel. People need the gospel. They need the truth of the gospel. They need, they need the, the understanding that Christ Jesus and his blood ransoms them and makes them whole and satisfies them and gives them hope. People want hope, but also gives them justice because God is the only one that can actually establish justice. Christ will establish a new world for those who trust him, who are justified, who are declared righteous, and evil will be eradicated. Every evil will be eradicated. The last point is this. He is worthy of all honor and worship. So when, when Jesus takes this, when the lamb who is slain takes this scroll, a worship service breaks out. They sing a new song, it says. The prayers of the saints, the, the calls for judgment of God upon evildoers, the, the prayers of God that the oppressed and the victims of this world will be vindicated and restored. The deliverance of righteousness, the calls for Christ's kingdom of justice and peace will come. These are the prayers of the saints. And they recognize that when Jesus opens the book, when he breaks the seal, that his kingdom is coming. They say, worthy are you because you were slain and you purchased, you bought for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They recognize that in Christ, justice will reign, that justice will reign down on the earth. Includes everyone, every people, every tongue, every nation, every race will be unified, will be together. And what will we be doing? We'll be worshiping God and we'll be worshiping the Lamb. Not saying who's better than anyone else. Not saying who's smarter than anyone else. 
Who's that that's saying who's been victimized and someone else will be just praising God? Just praising Him and worshiping Him. We'll be singing a new song of praise for God's victory and justice. A new creation has happened through the cross. Through the cross. A new race has been created through the cross. A new humanity has been created through the cross. These people who are worshiping God, who have been ransomed by Christ, are no longer identified by the color of their skin. They're identified by their identity in Christ. Alone. Because in Christ, we have the same need, right? The same issue of our sin and our needing for salvation. In Christ, we have the same Savior and we have the same hope. We are ransomed people, not by wealth, not by power, but by the blood of Christ. And that's just so important that we understand the biblical worldview here of justice and peace. Justice and peace will not come through governmental officials. It just won't. Maybe for a moment. Maybe for a time. But what is the direction of human history as it's been since the garden? It's been sin. It's been evil, it's been wickedness, and it's led to wars, it's led to death and killing and using of power for your own desires and your own needs. We have to have the understanding of God's worldview that God will bring justice into his world. And I'm thinking about MLK this week and reading I Have the I Have a Dream speech. And I don't know if you've read this in a while. I gave this speech in 1963. Uh, in Washington, D.C. You know, and he, he talks about, and these are, it's beautiful, it's a beautiful speech, it's a beautiful language, especially if you read it. And especially at the end where he talks about, you know, he has a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And he talks about it on the hills of Georgia that sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. That the world in Mississippi will be an oasis of freedom and justice. Problem with MLK's speech, okay, is that nowhere in here does it talk about Christ. It doesn't talk about it. While I, I agree with everything he says, it's missing the key ingredient, which is Christ. There is no brotherhood without Christ. There is no created equal without Christ. Because man does not establish that God does. He created you in the image of God, not man. You are valuable because God created you, not because man says you're valuable. You are valuable because God created you. And you're valuable to Christ because he ransomed you by his blood. That is how there is unity. That's how there is peace. That is the Christian worldview. A kingdom and priests, and they will reign upon the earth. The a great heavenly host, when they see this, when they recognize this, when the lamb who was slain takes the, the scroll, they worship him. And it says there were myriads of myriads, millions upon millions upon millions upon millions and thousands upon thousands are worshiping the lamb and worshiping God. A recognition, recognition that the worthiness of Jesus Christ, that the lamb is worthy to be praised. The Lamb is worthy to be glorified. He has majesty. He has glory. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God, the glory of his kingdom. And as citizens of his kingdom, we proclaim the righteousness of his kingdom that those in Christ will overcome. 
What does he promise the, ch the seven churches? They will overcome and be given the tree of life. They'll be giving eternal life, hidden manna, authority, clothed, secure, known, given the name of God, reigning with Christ. This is the hope that the world needs right now. They need the hope that is in Christ. What if those who are poor were made materialistically wealth and they were given new crowns as king and queens? What would change? They didn't have Christ. What would change? They still would have no hope. A world without Christ and his kingdom is a world without hope. People need Jesus. God will declare them righteous in Christ. Christ will establish his kingdom of justice and peace for all. This is the truth all people need to hear right now. They need to hear this. This is an opportunity to tell people what they want is in Christ. That's what people need to hear. They need to hear it so badly because they will follow any leader and any movement that tells them you can go this way and we'll, you'll get all the wealth and all the power you don't have. We'll give it to you. But they can't give them hope. Only Christ can give them hope. This is the truth all people need to hear right now, not the promise of wealth and worldly power. So I want to end because I know that this, this phrase has been out there, okay? Uh, critical race theory, okay? It's out there. If you don't know what this is, uh, you can come talk to me or you can Google it, okay? The problem with the critical race theory is that it is, does, it's not the biblical worldview. Our community and our city and our state and our nation needs Jesus. They don't need more money. Money, we've already established this. The Bible's already established this. You can have all the wealth in the world and you still will not be satisfied. You don't need better paying jobs, right? Because even if you had all this, this sense of employment and opportunities, even though that would be great in the moment, but without Christ, you're still empty. You're still without hope. If you need, if you if you have more power, it still doesn't. That power doesn't last forever. It's just for a moment, and you still are without hope. You need that. People need the one who has all the wealth and all the power. They need the one who has established righteousness by his blood and ransomed the people from every race, culture, and ethnic group. People don't need more godless promises and godless favors. They just don't need it. They need Christ. They need the hope that is in Christ. They need the godly promises and the godly favors and the godly blessings that are eternal. They, don't need, they need the supernatural power of God that flows from his throne in heaven and displays the faith of Jesus Christ. People need the gospel. They need it more today than they've ever needed it before. They need the gospel. Why? Because the justice that people are crying for is located in Jesus. He will bring it. He will bring he will already he's already confirmed your own righteousness, right? In the eyes of God by his own righteousness. He's already claimed he's you're already claimed righteous by what Christ did on the cross. You everyone in this room who have trusted in Christ are righteous in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done. He's already brought justice there. He will bring justice in the world. God has declared you and judged you holy. So I want to go back to the image. The door is open. The throne is in heaven. The lamb, the scroll, the kingdom, the one who conquered with him, who is worthy from every tribe, language, people, and nations. Justice is at the throne. Peace is at the throne. 
hope is at the throne. It's there. Point people to the door. Point people to the presence of God. Point people to Christ. Point people to the Lamb who was slain. That's where you should point people. Because that's where the justice is. That's where the peace is. That's where the love is. And I'm not telling you just to go lamb back that on, on Facebook or, or get to know people, talk to people, sit them down, ask them how you can pray for them, ask them how you can love them, ask them how you can serve them, and then share Christ with them. Share the love of Christ with them. Share your life with them. Pray for them. Care for them. And show them where true hope is and where true justice is and where true peace is. Let's pray. So I thank you so much for this word. I thank you so much for this letter. I thank you so much for what, how it challenges us, Lord. We are so, we so desire, Lord, to see things happen in our world established by, the, by movements and, and, and by these leaders, Lord. And, and we kind of get swept away in them. And, and Lord, we have to think for a little bit. We have to wonder and, 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 and pray, Lord, like what do people really need? What do people need? What do all people need? Where they need the gospel. They need Christ. I know that sounds so simplistic. I know that sounds so narrowing it down a, a lot, Lord. I know there's so many other complicated matters that are important to talk about. Healthcare, uh, jobs, education, all of those things are important. All those things are worth discussing. They're worth uh, changing in ways to make it more so that people can have access to these things and be, and be cared for and protected. But ultimate Lord, those things do not bring hope. Hope is only in Christ. Lord, may we be those who proclaim the gospel, proclaim your kingdom, Lord, and show people where true justice is and where peace is and where hope is. Help us to do that well. Help us to care for one another as a church, as we're coming at this issue from so many different directions, Lord. Help us, Lord, to focus on the gospel and reach people who are lost and who need Christ. Lord, help us. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is the way we're going to do this. We're going to bring this group up.